This episode of See Here is brought to you by the fine folks at Shit Kicker Heaven, providing you with all your shit kicker needs since 1957. We sell cowboy hats, cowboy boots, pickup trucks, dogs, ex-wives, and all your livestock marital needs. So come on down. Whether you be a cowpoke or a hog humper, we don't discriminate. We are a proud sponsor of See Here. podcast with a difference. We pick films that have something to do with music. And I think that the current episode is probably going to get us banned in America's South. Apologies, this may be our last ever episode, but I think we've just had the best intro ever had for this show. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne, Australia. My two learned compadres, Mr. Bernard Stickwell over in Buffin, England. Uh, hello there. And Mr. Tim Merrill over in Seoul in South Korea. <laughs> We like two kinds of music here. We like country and western. (laughs) Well, actually, there's a connection. We're going to be coming to that very soon. So have I mentioned what we're talking about? No, I don't think I have. Bernie, this was your pick for today. It just also happens to be one of our uh, audience members' picks. I mean, not not an official request, but you've gone and selected 1973 film directed by one Daryl Duke called Payday. We're going to have a lot of fun with this one. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said. So what we'll do is we'll quickly go to a break and play you the trailer for said film, Payday, and then we'll be back to uh, discuss it. So stay where you are. Y'all come back now here. Meet Maury Dan. He's a star, honey. I don't hang around Nashville waiting for Johnny Cash. He's getting along all right. She's a country girl. a piece of the gate next time out. People in hell want ice water, too. He gets the best things in life. We only pass this way once. Might as well pass by in a Cadillac. He's just a fun-loving, fast-living, free-wheeling country boy. Do you think going 95 miles an hour is funny, sir? Excuse me, sir. It's it is really all my fault. Because... Well, you're Maury Day. He likes his cars flashy. My God, is that yours? And his women friendly. I didn't actually think I'd get to meet you. Though. I think I can fix that. If he can't smoke it, drink it, spend it, or love it, forget it. <laughs> he has all the friends money can buy. I'm a public property. Rip Torn is Maury Dan, superstar. I love you, sweetheart. For Maury Dan, every day is payday. 
38 of See Here podcast. This is my third take of this intro. I can't believe it, but I'm having the heebie-jeebies today. We're here to discuss a 1973 film, K-Day, directed by one Daryl Duke, also the director of a film I really, really love called Silent Partner. But the film is Payday, directed by Daryl Duke, came out in 1973. The writer was one Don Carpenter. The cast features Rip Torn as Maury Dan, Jeff Morris, who I think he seems to have a limited range in character names because his character name here is Bob. And the only other film I think I've seen him in was the Blues Brothers where he was Bob and that there was his place. Well, I'm sure glad to have you boys here. I'm Bob and this here is my place. Well, it's a beautiful place, Bob. Anna Capri, who uh, I discovered was in Enter the Dragon. I'm trying to work out where she appeared in that. She was one of the girls on uh, Khan's Island. Right. Okay, I, I'm going to have to go back. It's been a while since I watched that. Right. I'd be interested to see her again in context outside of uh, what she did in this film. Let's say Elaine Halevale, have I got that pronounced correctly? And Michael C. Gwynn. So I'll read the IMDb Pracy. A cynical look at the life of a no-nonsense country western singer, Murray Dan, played by Rip Torn in one of his more memorable performances. He ruthlessly manipulates everyone around him to what? I can't read my writing. To shore his selfish needs. He even gets his oh, I don't think I want to read this next bit because yeah, this is yeah, sort of a yeah. bit of a, a a little bit of a giveaway. So spoiler um, alert. Yeah, yeah. I, we're gonna try and avoid the spoiler alerts, but it may be inevitable, but who knows. Right. Anyway, Bernie, this film was your pick. What made you select it? Uh it's been on my list to cover for a while actually. I've been aware of it for quite a while and something I had a copy of but never got around to watching. And then when we put out the call for listener picks last month, the month before, Rodrigo mentioned it, even though he kind of missed the deadline. He did mention this one, and I thought, perfect, we've got to do it. So I finally got off my butt, and I picked it. Rodrigo, I oh, hope but, you're happy. You've jumped the queue. By the way. Yeah, it's Rodrigo's uh, fault. I, <laughs> I want to congratulate Rodrigo on beautiful birth of a baby girl. Yay. Yay, Rodrigo. yes. Rodrigo. Yeah. yeah, way to go. Way to go, Daddy. Big and, Daddy. Yeah. And, and congratulations to Rodrigo and Yvonne. Beautiful. Let's hope she looks more like her mother. That's all That's all I can say. And not like the mailman. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, Bernie, so you hadn't seen this one before, had you? No, no, this is this was a first-time watch for me. To be honest, it's quite a, I don't know if obscure is too strong a word, but it's, it's certainly under the radar for a film from this period. And spoiler alert here, but a film as good as this, I really am surprised it's not more well-known. So hopefully us covering it can maybe turn a few people onto it. But it's uh, it's interesting. It seemed I don't think it did much business at all. I don't even know if it got a, a proper release, in fact. And then it just totally fell off the radar. You know, I think it, it might have shown up on the home video at some point. Yeah, I'm just stunned something like this. Effectively, one of those lost films, you know? Tim, had you seen this one before? No, I hadn't. It actually, there was a couple of things that really pleasantly surprised me about this one. One for the fact that the theme song, Payday, was actually written by Ian and Sylvia Tyson. And mm -hmm. Ian Tyson's really famous in Canada, well, him and his wife, because for years in the 60s and 70s, he was a country singer here. Got up this morning, you were on my mind, and you were on my mind. I got some 
And I knew his son, Clay Tyson, in Toronto several years, like well, 15, 20 years back now, because he played with a band that I knew. But anyway, the other one that really pleasantly surprised me was that the majority of the songs in this film were written by one Mr. Shel Silverstein. Yes. And I think, you know, he's a guy that I've always loved from reading his books of poetry as a kid to like all the stuff he did with Dr. Hook and everybody else that he wrote for. And I mean, it just shows you how a guy that they thought was some dope-smoking, deviant hippie dude could write some really poignant country songs. Yeah. And that's what really popped for me initially at first. And the other thing that I wanted to say before we continue on was, did either of you guys notice that Rip Torn in this film, he bears a striking resemblance to one of the main characters in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, LG? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe LG was based on him. <laughs> Look like two, teeth, two bro- isn't it? Do you think two it's brothers? the teeth? Maybe, maybe. I, in the shirt, in the, the, the scraggly yeah, yeah. hair. It just, both of them almost look like a mirror image when I, I started looking wow. at it. Like, when you watch certain films and you see characters, you're thinking, guy, I know this guy. Where do I know this guy? And not the actor, but just the role that they're playing. It, it, it really sure. bears a striking resemblance to something that you've seen in the past. And that's what it reminded me of. But anyhow, no, I had seen it before and I really, you know, quite enjoyed it. Well, funny you should mention about characters that it reminded you of. And so his character reminded me very much of the character that Andy Griffith played in Face in the Crowd, the Elia Kazan film. I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, a force. Force. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just not just in terms of his ego and his narcissism, and we'll sort of go a bit more into that, but the way how the Rip Torn character sort of presents himself and projects himself is very much similar to the uh, Andy Griffith character. They do have their differences, and you know, we'll, as we go along, we'll, I'll come back to that as a theme, but certainly from a looks perspective, how they both laughed, how they uh, both pushed themselves out there and forced themselves out there, realize that that was my big visual cue as Andy Griffith, and the story stories do share some very common themes right. in, in different ways. But well, we'll, we'll what you were talking about, Bernie, about rarely seen films, this film also reminded me of a Canadian film with, you guys familiar with the actor uh, Kier Dula, the guy that was the sure, lead yeah, in yeah. Yeah, 2001? He did a film called Paperback Cowboy, a Canadian film about an ex-hockey star who comes back to town and he's like this guy who was once a big shot and now he, he can't grow up and he's just still trying to live on laurels of the past, the crisis that it, you know emerges through that, it reminded yeah. me a lot of that film. It's worth checking out if you can find it. It's called Paperback Cowboy, but it's really good. It sounds to me like the difference is the character that Kid Julia plays in the film that you mentioned is someone who was someone who was big, if I understand correctly. Right, but within his community. He wasn't somebody that was world-renowned or on a larger scale. He was known in his own community. Uh, okay, okay. in that case, it's a very valid comparison because Murray Dan, yeah. the character played by Rip Torn in this film, is a guy who never quite made it to superstar status. In fact, he really is a, a big-in-the-community sort of guy, and people right. will right. worship yeah. and fall at his feet, but right. really he's... He's still he's, kind of looking for that break, isn't he? But at the same time, he's, he very much feels that he's kind of a cock of the walk. I'm not exactly sure that he is looking for that big break because there's one scene where his manager says to him, look, you know, you're going to take this two-week break instead just do some television appearances i can get you on the johnny cash show you want to hang around nashville a couple of weeks we can do the opry the 15th mm-hmm. tape a buck owen show the 17th and maybe the johnny cash special on the 26th what do you mean maybe 
Well, the country cousins are booked, but I heard Molly Jackson's leaving the group. Without Molly Jackson, there's no group, so there's an opening, maybe. Joyce said Johnny likes your payday. This could be a very big opportunity for you. What the hell, it's worth hanging around a couple of weeks for. We've been on the road three months now. You need a rest. I don't hang around Nashville waiting for Johnny Cash. It's almost like he was in, you know, Johnny Cash, fuck Johnny Cash. I don't need him. It's almost like, you know, I'm king of my particular pond. My little backyard, yeah. He still is not beyond graft and corruption, as seen later on in a radio station. Shows he knows who's Palmiest degrees. Well, I, I guess in, in, in a weird way, even though he's a kind of lazy, slobbish, manipulative kind of guy he does very much have that work ethic because it's kind of like oh well no let's not take those two weeks off let's you know book me on all the regular places yeah. around the northeast there's money to be made we got to get out there and do it right you know so he's definitely committed and he's got that ethic i think there's a duality with maury dan where there's that one side of him where he's kind of getting high off his own farts buying into his own mythology but at the same time on the other hand he recognizes that there's a reality about making money and and, and he has to keep it going because he doesn't know how long he's going to be able to keep it going. Sure, yeah. And I think there's a duality in that, the myth and then the waking up the next morning and uh, facing the, the bitter truth. God damn, I never saw such a man for interfering in other folks' business. Take your hands off my dog. That's something that I really appreciate the film there is its realism. And, you know, you've sort of hit on there exactly that point, Tim. In a lesser film, in a film that would have sort of typically been about a musician who's trying to make it big and never really quite does it, there'd be all these filmic fantasy elements, whereas this is as gritty and realistic. Absolutely. I, th- I think up until a point, there's an incident which, you know, depending on what you guys think, whether we should give away or not, but there's an incident late in the film which his Cadillac driver takes a rap for, which I think maybe that was a bit more filmic, but everything up until that point I saw as being probably very realistic about life on right. the road for a working musician. Sure, yeah. I counted over 400 people out there. That means without the comps, we packed your place for you and then some. Well, I guess it was a pretty good show. Fucking A, it was a pretty good show. Well, do you know, that's one thing that really struck me about it, and and again, it being a film of the 70s, I was surprised at just how dark it is and how dark it gets. Because certainly from the trailer and other things I'd heard and seen, it felt like it was going to be a little bit more lightweight, but it's not scared to dive in there and then confront some really dark, unpleasant issues, and people don't come out of it unscathed, put it that way. Can I ask you this, and this will really depend on your definition of the expression, but given its place in 70s cinema, do you think that Murray Dan is an anti-hero. You have a character like Travis Bickle, say, for instance, and he's an anti-hero, or McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's an anti-hero. They're both characters that are self-serving, but they're not completely without redeemable features. And yet, I see, maybe with the exception of a minute or so with the scene where he's with his mother, I think there's absolutely nothing redeemable about him. He's not a villain in the traditional sense of a villain, or maybe he is, I don't know, but does he fit the 70s definition of an anti-hero, in your mind? I don't think so. I I think he's kind of more of a warning. He's more of a cautionary tale. He's more of uh, the wrong kind of person and in the right kind of situation is going to turn into an absolute monster, basically. Like you said, there's a scene with his mother and there's there's a scene at the end where, in fact, it's the only scene in the film, I think, where you see him actually writing a song and tinkering with his guitar. Mm. Remember that she hasn't been alone for very long. 
It's the hand that I once clung to, now all it holds me is a slowly fading circle on her finger where my ring once used to be. That scene is beautifully played by um, Rip Torn because you, you kind of do get a sense of maybe not something good, but he's actually creating something and it's genuine and that feels very kind of strong. And you, you can kind of see the talent and how he's living is maybe making him produce something like that. But mm-hmm. that's not, ne- you know, that's just a byproduct, I guess. That's not, that doesn't make him a hero or a good person, but you can, you can see no. the talent there. No, I- he's not an anti-hero at all. He's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> right. I see Maury Dan, not the cop a phrase of a famous television show, but I see him as being basically arrested development. Yes. He's not able to evolve and he's not able, and, and in many ways he doesn't want to. I mean, he's the king of his court and that king ain't wearing no drawers and everybody can see it except him. That, you know, I think that a lot of people, when they get close to him and when they're out in the perimeter, they see him as being the high and mighty, but when they they really get close and they get a whiff of what he's all about, they just know that it's rotten to the core. I think he kind of knows that to an extent as well. Oh, yeah, exactly. When, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? He's they, not deluded. He knows that he's no. a, a piece of shit, frankly. Right, and so, that's yeah. what I'm saying about the, the duality is that, you know, yeah. where half of it is he doesn't give a fuck and he's just right into himself, and then the other half is that he loathes himself because he knows what he is. Sure. He, like you said, more he's the manipulator and he's the one that sets the parameters of how things are going to be and when things can't be like that when when, when there's no way of, of getting around things there's one point in the film near the end where you just see him almost have a shit fit like a conniption get these goddamn people out of here now can't do it Maury not this time okay alright I'll go then fuck you and everyone's yeah. just like, let him walk, let him walk. Right. And he's just like a little kid. When you're in the supermarket, you're exactly. telling the kid, the kid's grabbing cookies, and no, you can't have the, I want the cookies! You know, it's like, you can see him losing his shit. And that's where the reality of Maury Dan becomes fully apparent to everyone, I think. And that's where I see him coming back to the whole idea of this being a good companion piece to face in the crowd. That's one thing that Lonesome Roads, played by Andy Griffith, and Murray Dan, played by Rip Torn, have in common. They're both, as you say, high on their own supply, but they're also surrounded by a lot of yes men. Neither of them are going to be told no. The only difference is that Lonesome Roads has gotten to the top of his profession and all of America loves him, so no one can tell him that he's a piece of shit. I own him! They think like I do, but they're even more stupid than I am. <laughs> so I gotta think for them. Whereas you sort of often wonder, why the hell is no one telling Maury Dan? He's had to work his way hard to get to the middle. He doesn't go around in, in a big tour bus with his band. He goes around in a Cadillac by himself. In fact, he's, as I said in Taxi Driver, he's God's lonely man. Everything he does, he does because he is an island dumb to himself. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, if anybody gets what? too close to him as well, they or you know starts to see under the Emperor's new clothes, as you were saying, Tim, he cuts them off, he throws them out. Well, here's the thing. Thing. Okay, you were saying, Morris, you're wondering why you know nobody said no to him. I can tell you why exactly. I'd say about 95% of the people in this film, they want to be somebody they're not. And it's not just Maury Dan. I mean, it's the kid playing guitar that wants to join yeah. the band. 
It's the women that Maury's with. It's the driver. There's so many people in this film that want to be something that they're not. And they see Maury as kind of their ticket to allow them to be something that they're not. If he can get high off his own supply and, and believe his myth, well, then I can do that too. And I can buy into my own bullshit. And I think there's a lot of that, you know. And when they have to face the bitter reality, when they, they realize that they can't be what they want to be and that it, it's not all that. And specifically, the one girl initially where yeah. she goes along for the ride and then when she finds out that it's not what she really wants or not what she thought she was after all then that all boils down to it what's going on around here anyway i don't understand anything and uh, i think i want to go home now does that make any sense what i'm saying I mean, oh, com completely oh absolutely well, again, I think that that is something that makes it feel, gives it that kind of genuine edge because, you know, you hear stories of people who are famous rock stars or country stars or anybody in that position in the media who's making money and doing well. They've always got their big posse of hangers on and people who are, you know, yes men and so on because they want their bite of the pie as well, you know? It's the name of the film, isn't it? It's payday. They all right. want paid. They all want to be something they're not. Yeah. So you're absolutely on the money there, Tim. I had a friend of mine years ago that played in bands for years and years and he had a great expression. He said, you know, basically bug lamp. When a bug lamp is so bright, and you get all these little things that fly around the bug lamp, but then when they get too close, they get zapped, you know? Yeah. That's pretty much the rock and roll music lifestyle on the road is bug lamp, is that, you know, you, yeah. you just get all these kind of hangers on or, you know, everyone just trying to gravitate around this big bright thing, you know, thinking like it's so special, you know? And isn't that an interesting thing? So the last, whatever, 40, 50 years, of rock and roll being the music that's pretty much predominantly in the popular public's eye. A lot of those sorts of films, I don't know, you think of mid-70s version of A Star Is Born or, or The Idol Maker or any of those sorts of films, or Phantom of the Paradise, which we discussed. It's about mm -hmm. the trappings of the rock and roll lifestyle. And here, Daryl Duke and Don Carpenter have said, look, forget that genre. You know, country music is the current rock and roll. He's a bad boy. And it's not limited to the guys in the tight spandex pants. Mm. It's a universal thing, isn't it? You, you get money and you get ego and you get a, this sort of fandom right. and celebrity and you mix it all up and nine times out of ten you're going to get this kind of result aren't you well what gets me is that obviously you know this is a fictitious character but it affects even c-grade shit kickers so strongly in a negative way you can't even imagine how people like waylon jennings and willie nelson and johnny and all those guys survived even at the top trying to maintain that kind of lifestyle even for a c-grade country and western singer but for yeah. all like Im imagine like Johnny Cash, at the height of his popularity, he was basically like, there's a scene in this film where the bookkeeper is basically figuring out how much they made and handing out the envelopes to all the guys in the band and everything. But imagine being like Johnny Cash where you've got like 600 people or whoever sure, yeah. you know, yeah. underneath you, you know, and you're, you're responsible for the livelihoods of all these people. Man, that's got to do major things to your head. It's interesting because uh, Maury says at one point, doesn't he, uh, oh, I've got a lot of people dependent on, on me, a lot of people that have their jobs because of me, effectively. And it's interesting because they do, but really it's only a handful. Yeah, he's using yeah. it as an excuse to get out of the situation, right? right. I'm an important guy. But like you say, it's not a Johnny Cash level. 
For a film that's about a country and western singer, you only really get to see a couple of examples of Rip Torn performing. She's only a country girl, but we How do you feel about his portrayal, or did you feel like he he was really pulling it off authentically, or was he basically pulling a Mark Wahlberg in uh, that metal film? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Think. Well, I'd be surprised if Rip Torn hadn't hung around some country singers, hadn't hang around bands, and sort of you know, spent some time on the road with them because his performance here is completely authentic. Before I should like talk a little bit more about his performance here, sorry if I digress a little bit, but it is still sort of related to what you were saying about the fact that there is, for a film that's supposed to be about a musician, there's really very little live performed music in the film. There's really just the opening scene and a party scene, but there's really only like with Murray Dan as performed, there's only the opening scene. I love how Daryl Duke sort of introduces the film. Now, if you'd walked into this and you knew nothing about it, you watched the opening three, four minutes, you might sort of think it was a little bit going to be something like the Buddy Holly story. Remember the opening scene of that where we get people walking into the roller rink and then we see Buddy Holly and the crickets tuning up and then they're going to get out and do a song and then we all know what goes on after that. So we start this film once again as well in the car park and we follow the people into the bar and Murray Dan and his band are playing and we think, okay, well, if you do nothing about it before starting to watch it, you figured, okay, this might be a song about the rags to riches story of a country singer. And you, you get three, four minutes of that, and you hear this song, and he's performing, and it's all great. You don't think it turns to shit, exactly. But within five, six minutes after that opening song, we've seen him as a hard negotiator of his finances. And we see him, if it's not quite rape, it's almost coercion to the point of rape of one of his fans in the car, oh, yeah. in the car park yeah. saying, hey, uh, come to the car, I can sell you some records. Yeah. Three, three, four minutes of thinking it's going to be one type of film, and then within five, six minutes, within, yeah. oh, wow, this is going to a really, really dark place. And I just absolutely love that setup and then that punch in the face. Right. Daryl Duke. It's, it's one thing, we think that this is a music film, but it's more like Daryl Duke is saying, this is a guy, he's worshipping because he's a singer, you don't really need to see any more of the music it's going to be a couple of days yeah. in his life it's just we're showing you the music so you know that he's bona fide at what he does and right you've got that picture but the rest of the thing is just more it's about how he's trapped by his belief that his chosen profession entitles him to be king of the world yeah king of the world that he wants to be now that you mention it you guys saw that mickey rourke film the wrestler yes sure yeah this was this was very similar i think yeah I can see what you're you know, getting at, yeah. It, I'm not quite sure that because he was a guy who was a has-been and he's given away the life and he's found problems within his personal life. But it's been a long while since I've seen it. But to the best of my recollection, he's not a despicable character. He's just a guy who's... I think no. um, 
No, I think what Tim's but, getting at is, you mean it's basically he's a wrestler, but you don't see him wrestle. Okay, all right, fine. Yeah, but you see some wrestling in it, but the, also the thing is, is that the only place that he's validated is within the wrestling ring, within the parameters that he's established it. That's where the guy only feels that he's at the top of his game is when he's within this kind of environment. You know, Maury Dan is the same thing, is that he really can't function outside of that environment that he's kind yeah. of put himself in. He's you know crazy. what I mean? And, that, and that's why I, I kind of equated the similarities to the wrestler, right? Where it doesn't matter whether he's being detrimental to himself. He's got to play out this part and he's going to do it even if it kills him. I sort of see, though, that Riptorn's character in Payday, I almost wonder whether music is just a means to an end so he can live the life that it's he wants. interesting. Whereas yeah, Mickey Ross, he lives for the ring. With Maury, his, his attitude to the actual music and to performing live, it's he's almost fairly dismissive when you know they're, right. they're talking about one of the LPs later, and it might be that scene where he goes to see the DJ, but he comes out of that, and his Chicago, his big sort of right hand man guy, sat in the car listening. Well, move over, God damn it! Sit next to her, you get in the middle. Jesus Christ, women! Lord, I hope they make it happen. Turn the shit off, Paul ass. To a, you know, a song that Maury Dan is, has recorded playing on the radio and Maury Dan's like, oh, turn that shit off. I've had enough of that. He's very dismissive of the actual, well, art, for want of a better word. And his image, too, in, in a way, because like there's one point where he says, oh, yeah, you think I grew up on a farm? No, I ran away from the farm when I was 12 years old. I hate the farm. Sure, yeah. But he, but he plays himself as this kind of good old boy, shit kicker, hayseed, you know, country boy, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> Do you think going 95 miles an hour is funny, sir? <laughs> Excuse me, sir. It's it is really all my fault because you see, I'm an entertainer and I'm just uh, might be late for an engagement. I told my people to step on. Why, well, you're Maury Dan. I'm very flattered you recognize me, sir. Recognize you? Well, you're one of my favorites. Thank you. Thank you. Going back to what you said, Morris, about the opening of the film, I think what that does really well and, and what the film does really well in general, I mean, certainly that opening is a really sort of great way of setting a context for Maury and the whole film. Within a couple of minutes, you know exactly the kind of world that he's operating in, as you say. And I think what they do really well is just so genuine. They obviously shot all this on location. You know, the locations and shooting in general right. just gives it a really authentic feel. There's a lot of real faces. There's a lot of obviously real people. And that nightclub at the start that he's playing in, you know, that's obviously a real nightclub with real sort of patrons in there. So right, right away, you feel like you're, you're completely he sort of just dropped into this world. And interesting as well, Riptorn is easily the most recognisable face in this. A lot of the other actors are, um, they're certainly not names or faces that you would really recognise. So it gives it a real feel of kind of genuine people, you know? Right. There's one point in this film that had me laugh out loud. And it's really a terrible thing, and I shouldn't laugh at it, but it just, it just seems so funny to me. And that's where all I'm going to say is that a car backs up at one point, and Riptorn gets out and says, You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a fucking asshole. But I couldn't help but laugh because he, you think, you know, it's like he backs up once and you think, okay, it's it's over. And then he backs up again and you're like, what? Yeah. Oh! That is a dictionary definition of spiteful, isn't it? That is just oh, pure shit, man. I, I was sort of wondering whether at that moment he had a brief moment of conscious or whether his manager or Chicago, his chauffeur, had gone and said, look, come on, throw us some money and he did it under duress before driving away and thinking, no, fuck that. That's my money. money. I think he, uh, he threw the money out and then realized, hang on, no, I'm an asshole. I can't do that. <laughs> right. Speaking of assholes. Waking up in the backseat of a car after a lovely bound of lovemaking only to look at another woman staring at you. That was unbelievable. And, uh, my God, how bad must it have smelled in the back of that Cadillac? Everybody in this film is sweating constantly. This is like oh, the yeah. sweatiest film since Cry of a Prostitute, isn't it? Right. It's just, oh my God. And that hotel room at the start after the gig when there's about 40 people crammed into this tiny little hotel room playing bluegrass and yes. playing right. poker and stuff. And man, the sweat's dripping off the ceiling. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there was one point in this film, well, there were several points that creeped me out, but one in particular was there's a moment when Maury goes in to visit his ex-wife to see his kids, yeah. and the girl is sitting there having a conversation with Chicago about cooking. Yes, yeah. That was really creepy to me. I don't know yeah. why. She's in the back, and he's just like, yeah, you got to use a regular iron pan. What about nonstick? No, don't use a nonstick pan. And she's like, what are you, some type of chef? Say, what are you, some kind of chef or something? I thought you were a driver. Chief cooking bottle wash. And he just looks back at her, and he's just like, yeah, I used to be a chef and a bottle washer. She asked him, what are you? And he says, chief cook and bottle washer. And That's really, it, yeah. that is his role in this film. He's Absolutely. got to give away a little bit, but not too much. The chauffeur <laughs> becomes the fall guy, the patsy for something that Maury Dan does very late yeah. in the film. And this line of being the chief cook and bottle washer, he's there to drive him. He's there to be his sounding board. He's there to be his yes man. And he's there mm -hmm. to take the rap for something for him. So the, the, He's there the to cooking, clean up his shit, basically. Exactly. The, yeah. the cooking is a metaphor. And really, out of all the major to semi-major parts, that character is the only decent one. Everyone else has got their baggage. He's the only one who I think can walk away with any sort of credibility. Obviously, Rip Torn is an asshole. The manager is a little bit smarmy because he knows what's going on. The girlfriend has higher hopes, but she's pinning her hopes on him being successful, as is the new groupie. The chauffeur, Chicago, is the only one who... To me, anyway, comes off with you're the only sort of decent guy out of all the major characters yeah. or semi-major characters in the film. You can't help but feel he's, he's a little naive and he's kind of hitched his wagon to the wrong horse, basically. But he's but now he he's done it away. and he's made that commitment. He's Because he's an honourable man, mm -hmm. he will clean up the shit and he will take the rap because that's his job and that's what he's there to do. You think you can stand still for this one? I sure would appreciate it. Sure, Mark. Oh, it should have been me anyway. So, yeah, I think you're right, Morris, yeah. I wanted to make another point about the non-diegetic music in the film. So, you know, we've already gone and spoken about the introduction of music at the beginning of the film. But we get some non-diegetic music that's composed by someone called Ed Bogus, who 
has written a couple of very different projects. He wrote the music for Fritz the Cat, and he also went and wrote the music for TV series, which I had the misfortune of having to watch when Max was a little boy called Garfield and Friends. Pretty bad. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. Anyway, so Ed Bogus wrote the music for a couple of the scenes in this film, and it just didn't seem too appropriate. It seems more like the sort of Lalo Schifrin wannabe that you sort of got in some of those 70s films. There's a little bit of the fiddle in the background. It's like their token dip of the hat to, well, this is a film about a country singer. But the music otherwise seemed like it would have been really... Some of it sounded like uh, eight takes from Smokey and the Bandit or something, didn't it? Oh, yeah, maybe. Well, no, I mean... But a, ba- a little funkier than that, I guess. So, well, Smokey and the Bandit was a few years later, but I sort of got the feeling sure. like this belonged more in an action film set in San Francisco or in Los Angeles or something like that. Right. Yeah, I can right. see that. Yeah, yeah. Like a, I suppose it, it does, it does jar more. a little. Shaft or Dirty Harry, and I just thought, this this doesn't really. A car driving down a country road in this film does not warrant that type of music. But anyway, look, it's a minor thing, and otherwise, what I think is a magnificent film. But just wanted to bring that up because I thought, well, we had to have a little bit of music talk because we are a music film podcast after all. Another interesting aspect of the film: a big part of the film, probably a good eighty percent of the film, is a road trip because we're following Maury as he drives up. I think he's going up to Birmingham, Alabama, isn't he, to play a gig, basically. And what I found really interesting is the way Daryl Duke, let me get that right, because isn't he the head of the Ku Klux Klan? That's David Duke, isn't it? David Duke, (laughs) The way Daryl Duke... The way Daryl Duke shoots the film, um, because you were talking about the music, there's a lot of scenes of just the car driving, the Cadillac driving through the countryside with that kind of music playing. But it's interesting that the pace of the film, and he's not scared to let some of these scenes go on for longer than you would, you know, longer than would be necessary, really, which I, I think works really well. I think it gives a little, I don't know, art house is obviously way too strong a word, but um, it gives the film a little more kind of substance. Do you know what I'm getting at? No, 100%. Does that he's, make sense? Like, he's basically saying, look, you, we're not just here to drive the story. We feel that you'll get something out of the story when we show yeah. you where this character is going. And yet the yes. film, to me, it never drags. I mean, yet you're right, these scenes go on yeah. a little. So, like, for instance, a, a really good example of that, there's this scene where after Murray Dan and his band member Bob, played by Jeff Morris, who, as I said before, was Bob in The Blues Brothers, the two of them go out on a bird hunt. They come back to yes, Murray's, yeah. Murray's mother's place, and then they get into a fisticuffs. They get into a punch-up when Murray has his pride wounded after Bob says, I'm going to buy your dog off you because your mother can't look after it. And that scene could have easily sort of had a, a punch in the jaw and then walk away with pride wounded. But that scene goes on for a good four or five minutes. There's a, the fight itself, and then there's the aftermath. Yes of the fight and I wouldn't have had it any other way I mean I think in a yeah, less, perfect, in it? a lesser director's hands that could have been seen as yeah a little bit superfluous but just everything so completely works here I absolutely love that scene there's a scene later in the film as well when the uh, the boy who kind of wants to join the band says oh Mr. Dan will you listen to my songs and there's a scene where they're kind of just leaning against this Cadillac and the boy's playing some songs and singing to him I keep forgetting you know we could be before you're still going
I got more. I, I got more. I got one that's mostly for a girl singer, but I could. You want a job? And the camera just, they're framed right in the middle of the shot and the camera just slowly pulls back and it keeps pulling back and it keeps pulling back. It's just a really interesting choice and it really kind of frames that moment really well. It's not a conventional shot for no. that type of scene. I, I absolutely Not I at all. Yeah, yeah. So the, I think the film has several really interesting choices like that, which uh, to its credit, mm-hmm. to uh, Daryl Duke's credit, really adds to the film. Maybe it's me, but there was a whole thing with Maury and his ex-wife where he went back to see the kids and then, you know, she pisses him off and he, he smacks her. But then she said, Maury, I get it. I understand. And he feels bad about it to a, mm. to a certain extent. And then he says, bullshit, I don't feel bad. I know you're sorry. I know it was an accident. You came in all tense off of the road. Look. Bullshit, lady. Because, like, you know, she, she kind of says, hey, I, I know, you know, you're really feeling bad. And he kind of feels exposed. So he kind of says, bullshit, you know, like, no, I don't feel bad. And But you see yeah. him later on, he's writing this song. The song yeah. is actually, the lyrics is, uh, there's an indent on her finger where the ring once used to be. He's writing about himself and his past, you know, with his wife. After yeah. that scene, he kind of, he goes back to his wife's house, doesn't he? And then, you know, he's letting a little bit of emotion show there. He's being a little bit vulnerable. And when it right. doesn't play out the way he wants, like you say, he's just like, oh, fuck yeah. it, it's bullshit. And he runs off yeah. and retreats yeah. back into himself again. I, I love that, though, just seeing Ribbon sitting there with a the picking on that guitar and writing that song, you know? And it's yeah. just like, and you can't tell whether it's like 3 a.m. or 9 a.m. or whatever. Ever. It's just like, you know, and he's all strung out on pills and it's just a great moment. It's wanna... really sensitively done as well because it doesn't batter you around the head with the idea of him. Actually, yes, he is vulnerable and he has got emotions and underneath it all, you know, he's human. It, it just it just gives you enough that you can kind of see a chink of that, you know? I wanted to make comparison to another film. I've already sort of mentioned Facing the Crowd, but there's another film which it's not a great film, but it has some themes in it that I like and certainly one of my favourite soundtrack albums. And that's a film that came out in 1979, Paul Simon's One Trick Pony. And I don't know if either of you guys ever got around to seeing that film. Oh, yeah, a long time ago. No, it's one I haven't seen. Right. Well, unfortunately, Paul Simon wrote the script and he had a great story to tell, but he's no script writer and and he and his band are no actors. But I like the themes that are present in the film. So basically, you know, Paul Simon is not someone who has made his way to the middle. He was someone who was a big hit based on one song in the 60s. He went and wrote this one anti-Vietnam War song called Soft Parachutes. Soft parachutes Fourth of July And villages burning Returning The bodies all laid in a line Like soft parachutes And he was a big, big star But really his star has faded And it's the end of the 70s, so he plays with his incredible band through just pubs and clubs, whatever part of America he's in, just like Murray Dan is. But that's the extent where Murray Dan has gone. That's the extent of Murray Dan's success is just up in the middle, whereas Paul Simon has tasted it. But he doesn't particularly feel the need that he's missing that success. In fact, when he's offered a place on a Where Are They Now tour, which would have brought him to the public eye, almost point blank refuses to do it. He's just happy to play with his band. There are similarities and differences with the two characters, which is why I think makes a good companion piece. So 
the Paul Simon character in One Trick Pony is like Mori Dan. He's a divorced guy. The two characters, they both have kids. But Paul Simon, he actually gives a fuck about his son and he wants to be a part of his life and he goes off the road to spend some time. The wife resents it that you went off to be a kid by playing your rock and roll while I'm here looking after the kid, but there's no doubt that he is very devoted to his son, unlike Maury Dan, who doesn't even remember his son's birthday, and he expects the red carpet put out for him when he comes to bring him a birthday present eight months late or four months too early, depending on your perspective. Isn't it, though, where he says he thinks the kid's five years old, and she says, no, he's 11 years old. Right. <laughs> I'm like, right. holy shit, how, how long has he been away? It's like, you know. Yeah. Mm. Don't you know where the kids are after school? You know, Billy's only six or seven. Billy is 11. Kitty's 13 and Elmore's 14. I swear I don't know whose birthday you thought you were going to celebrate. It's Elmore's birthday, that's who. Well, you're either four months early or eight months late for that one. The other reason why I wanted to compare the film, this is a more superficial reason. Most of the good comparisons are thematic, but Rip Torn is actually in One Trick Pony in a very, very different part. In One Trick Pony, he plays the head of the label that's possibly interested in giving the Paul Simon character another shot at success. Whereas in Payday, he's playing the wild country singer who no one can tame. In One Trick Pony, he's the establishment. He's the label head. He's the one who wants to call the shots. And Paul Simon doesn't feel comfortable about it, doesn't really want to do it, but he's not playing immaturely like the Murray Dan character does in One Trick Pony. And of course, Paul Simon's character in One Trick Pony, he sleeps with Rip Torn's wife to get what he wants. I don't know whether Murray Dan would actually do. He he sleep with ever with any woman that he wants, but don't think he feels the need that he would sleep with a label head's wife to get what he wants. He just does it because he wants it. So anyway, I just thought that there were some uh, interesting comparisons. I think that it would make a really good double bill, though I think Payday is the far superior film. But One Trick Pony does have some interesting themes going for it. This is not a biography, but it's almost like, you know, the whole film is done like a fly on the wall, where we get to see the highs and the lows, and, you know, we get to see all layers of the cake, so to speak and uh, all aspects of who Maury Dan is. I was just listening to an interview recently with the director who directed the Lemmy documentary. Mm. There's a piece in the film where Lemmy, there's a photograph of Lemmy wearing uh, jorts, which are like yeah. jean shorts, you know what I mean? And they're they're extremely short. I mean, <laughs> you know, like butt, butt huggers, you know? And when Lemmy saw the clip in the film, he said to the director, you betrayed me. Like, why did you put that in there? And he says, hey, man, like, you know, you knew I was going to put that in. No, I, I didn't know you were, you know, you betrayed me, you know? And it made him look really vulnerable or a little bit ridiculous in a way, you know? And I think that when you get these performers or musicians, people on the road, it's like this, the little engine that could, it has to keep chugging along and there has to be this belief that I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this all the time. But when there's the chink in the armor, as we've been saying, and you, you start to see the wearing down or you start to see them in their, you know, vulnerable moments, fans, I think, will say, I don't care. Yeah, man, I still fucking love the guy. I still love the music. But the artists themselves, I think, sometimes feel like, I'm done. If anybody sees me wearing short shorts, I'm done. If anybody sees me like crying or, or anybody sees me, you know, like being soft, I'm done. Their persona is so controlled. I think somebody in that situation, I mean, they are kind of living in a bubble. 
they're not right. dealing with real life and real feelings and real emotions. So sure. I guess little things like a picture of Lemmy in his jaws, which is nothing. Do you know what right. I mean? But that can suddenly seem like a huge big thing, which may affect how the whole engine works. Your ability to actually differentiate between what's important in a real sense and what's important to you in your little bubble. It's just everything's kind of out of whack, you know? All right, folks. So are there any final things you want to say about the film before we wrap up? I would just reiterate that it's a great, dark, genuine and fantastic film. And I'm just really surprised it's not out there. It'd be really nice to see a decent sort of Blu-ray release of this. Mm. I'm surprised that considering how great Rip Torn's performance is, I'm just amazed that, you know, he didn't become a, a bigger name, I guess after this because he's, he's obviously got the chops so yeah just just try and find it it's a fantastic film interesting to uh, imagine if this film had been about a rock and roll singer from los angeles or from new york whether it would have had more attention the fact that it was about a country singer and especially at the time it yeah. wasn't necessarily seen as being something a lot of cinema going patrons i don't know i'm guessing it's interesting though it's it's, it's a double-edged sword because i think in a way the fact that it is about a country singer is, is kind of what makes it special if it was about a rock and roll singer and that whole world, that kind of thing was so known and not that's, overexposed, that's but was yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have been about a rock and roll singer from Europe and, the, and his European girlfriend in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> no comments. Now that's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> this has got to be a double bill for me. For anyone that wants to see this, I'd say that double bill with this with Altman's Nashville. But I mean, both films are kind of, they show all the levels of the, the old Nashville music industry. And I mean, you know, yeah. the highs and the lows. I should have said at the beginning of the show, I want to give a shout out to our uh, very good friend and community member, Mr. Davey McLemore, because I think this is the sort of film that he would have said is a real grown-ups film. He's used that expression before, I think, about songwriters yeah. like Towns Van Zant. He said, you know, he's always writing grown-up songs songs about real people real life situations no fantasy no bullshit and i think possibly that song that you mentioned before tim where he's sitting by himself composing the song the dent on a finger where the ring used to be yeah that almost sounds like a line out of a tense song oh yeah a bit of a, a heads up to our good friend davy mack i hope you've enjoyed this discussion your words really rang true in my ears and about this film is a real grown-ups film. It's been constructed brilliantly. It's an honest, earthy sort of story. Maybe the last five or six minutes. I wouldn't say it's bad. I think I think it's still very good. I think they sort of go a little bit down the more artificial cinematic route. You can kind of understand why they went for that ending because sure. I mean, let's not give anything away, but there is a certain resonance there, and yeah, it, it's it's not a surprise when it happens. Put it that way. I mean, I don't know whether it's as realistic as eighty-five yeah, percent yeah. of what's come before it. It's not a disappointment. It's you know, it's not like they've gone completely back on themselves. Far from it. But anyway. I'd urge you, I think all three of us would urge you to search this film out. Uh, oh, yeah. Give it a watch. It's a, yeah, definitely. It's, it's a 70s gem, so uh, thanks to you, Bernie, for picking this, and thanks to you out there, Rodrigo, for putting the idea in Bernie's mind. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just checking. I'm not sure if it's on YouTube or not. I'm just going to It's not. Look. The trailer not. is. Oh, okay. No, the trailer right. is, but uh, and there's clips, but the full right. film is not on YouTube. Oh, that's a pity. You can find it on the place that shall not be named. Voldemort. 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 Yeah. Right. 
You just right. named it, Morris. Oh, Too late. damn! We're going to be cursed. Oh. There ends our discussion of Payday and our episode 38 of the See Here podcast. So normally it would be my pick for next month. However, I'm foregoing that until April because, as you mentioned a little bit earlier on, Bernie, we have a few uh, selections from listener requests. And I put out the notion on Facebook group uh, a few weeks ago and we had quite a few selections. But the first four that made it in, well, I'll read you what the first one is because that's what's relevant for next month. And that was from our good friend and compadre, Eric Reanimator. He's gone and picked a film called Still Crazy. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that. Billy Connolly. My God, it's got to have some merit. It's, it's good old Billy Connolly. Fuck off. It's such a lovely pair of words. If we couldn't resist doing the uh, good old boys talk in this episode, I'm going to really have to hold myself back from doing my Scottish accent in the next episode. You, do, you like, do a good Billy Connolly, uh, Morris. I've heard it before, so... Oh, fucking great. Fuck off means fuck off. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Thanks. Um, we want the whole episode next month, you talking in that voice, okay? Oh, I'll fucking do it. I'll do it too, you know. No offence to any Scots out there. And, and God, if, if we've gone and lost the South of America, we're going to lose all of Scotland next month. So, Still Crazy, uh, which is uh, Eric Reanimator's pick. And uh, I won't reveal what we have yet for our April selection, but the film that I've picked, which the guys know about, it's inspired by a post that you made, Bernie, about a film that you recently watched. Uh, I got the okay from you because it's... Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. It it has a music connection, but I'm spreading it a little bit thin. But I've gone and asked previous podcast guest and someone who we uh, all admire very much, Mr. Frank Santopadre. I asked him to be on. He said yes, so that's sealed it. So just stay tuned. We have uh, a corker of a film for uh, April, and it's all the more so because uh, we're being joined by Mr. Frank Santo Padre of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast. But next month, uh, Still Crazy by uh, Eric Reanimator, his selection. We'll see whether he'll see fit to join us, possibly. That'll be, uh, be a nice uh, quadruple. So housekeeping, if you want to get in contact with us, and we'd love it if you would, see here podcast at gmail.com. The Facebook group is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast and that's h-e-a-r but of course you know that because you're listening to us any other face keeping i can't think of it but um no i think that pretty face much keeping face keeping any face keeping yeah. any bookkeeping <laughs> I, 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 gosh i, I, I completely it's okay that up. it's late where you are morris it's fine it's okay yeah, it, is, it is late never mind but yeah. um, i gotta say i've really had a blast this has been uh, a lot of fun this discussion so boot scooting fun oh yeah until next month please watch some great movies Listen to some great music. Make some of it country music. And until next month, we wish y'all safe tidings. All the best, y'all. Take Take care, y'all. Takes will be more interesting than the actual show. Uh, we could Sorry. stick them on the end like a Jackie Chan film. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 